We are all born out of sacrifice, blood, and pain. That powerful fact of our births is the first commonality that we all share. From womb to world, we become intrepid or timid adventurers in environments full of challenges, suffering, and unforeseeable circumstances. Whether we believe in a god or not, we all love. Whether we think only darkness awaits us after we perish or not, we all laugh. Whether we think we know the spiritual fabric which weaves the nature of reality or not, we all dream. Whether we are surrounded by friends or entirely alone, we all fear. We all know the terror of nightmares, the relief of waking up to our damp sheets and realizing we are safe in bed. We all know the comfort of embracing somebody who loves us, and looking back on similar memories when the world feels cold and callous. Despite our similarities, we continue to be the keepers of our own demise, brother and sister, mother and father, stranger and ally. The second commonality of our lives is that we are all haunted by something, and almost unfailingly, this conjuration will be influenced or made holy by somebody else. Somebody who can empathize with precisely the experiences we've had. The third and final thing we share is the inevitable. What awaits us in tragedy, old age, sickness, or health. That which makes our time precious or beauty beautiful. It is because we all die that our appreciation for each moment can deepen move us to tears. It is because of this shadow that it follows us all that we are alive. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and these are the stories of monsters whose voices are lost in history. And this is Mania. In 1874, Poitiers, France, the air tastes sweet to Blanche Monnier, because the wintry winds are a mild disturbance while she is in the arms of Daniel, a lawyer several years her senior. She can smell the coffee on his breath between their chuckles and remarks. Every movement and sentence feels secretive, because Blanche knows that this love interest is against her mother's liking. Though the couple feels young and juvenile, with Blanche hiding their love from her family, the questions following it become unexpectedly heavy. Mademoiselle Monnier is a socialite. Her long ties to old nobility have kept their family rooted in Parisian aristocracy for centuries. To act against that aristocracy's wishes is to invite a wrath better left to the imagination. But what's the worst that can happen? Daniel asks her. Her eyes are lost as she imagines the consequences were she to tell her mother that she wishes to marry Daniel and not any of the other better-matched suitors. When she doesn't answer, Daniel scoffs. What can they do? Lock you in a castle tower and throw away the key. The winds bite at her as she considers Daniel's words, walking towards her ornate home alone. The dozens of windows glow amidst the light snowfall. The sharp tapping of her heels are muffled as the frost gathers beneath her feet. If she knew this was going to be the last night when she could enjoy the quiet snowfall alone, would she have enjoyed it more? If she knew this would be the last time in decades 
that she could watch her breath cast steam into the air. Would she linger before stepping out of the cold? If she knew this would be one of the last moments wherein her sanity remains intact, would she have run away? It is impossible to say. All we can do is watch. The night cascades like the events of a nightmare, relentless. At each possibility for placating a placid existence, it always defies the better option in lieu of something darker. It is not bound by common decency, morality, sense, or reason. Blanche's admittance for loving Daniel and refusing her other suitors erupts a hatred in Madame Monnier that is unrivaled, I imagine, by even some serial killers. Their verbal quarrel is brief and brutal. Blanche is reminded of the rigidity of aristocratic thinking, the humanity that is sacrificed for the sake of status, respectability, and ludicrous ideals. The following events are both tragic, unbelievable, bizarre, pulled straight out of a book of tall tales, and yet horrifyingly real. Madame Monnier thrusts her child into her bedroom and locks it from the outside, telling her only daughter that she will let her out once she's changed her mind. Seeing that it is late into the evening anyways, Blanche considers this to be little else than an overreaction. She sleeps off the argument, feeling little fear, but perhaps a trepidation for the next time she tries to sneak out in order to see Daniel. Their love is threatened, that much she is certain of. When she wakes up the following morning, she is not called down to breakfast as she usually is. She tiredly tries the handle of her door, only to find it unwilling to turn. Shaking it, she screams for her mother to come to her senses and open the door. When Madame Monnier attends to her daughter's shouts, she repeats the same condition of freedom. But this only bolsters her daughter's bullheadedness. It's worth it not to lie, to stay trapped for another few hours, to prove a point about love. So she stays there. During that second day, her brother, Marcel, hears what their mother has done to his sister. When he sees the locked door for himself, it feels surreal to trap an adult in a bedroom as if they are a child. But to do so for longer than twelve hours is truly beyond reason. Or is it? Once Marcel has heard the reason for his sister's imprisonment, he feels very little for his sister. In fact, he wonders, and is quite certain, that she deserves it. Let me out, Marcel, Blanche orders from behind the door. This is for your own good, her brother says. You will see reason soon enough. But when she doesn't see reason within that evening, it comes time to feed Blanche. As they do so, like delivering a bowl of scraps to an animal, or perhaps a trained circus beast in boarding for the night, she isn't invited downstairs to enjoy dinner before being escorted back to her room. Instead, the food is abruptly thrown onto her bed, and there, contemplating how she will relieve herself in the next few hours, the young mademoiselle realizes that she will actually have to eat the scraps, bit by bit, with her fingers. And later that evening, when both her brother and mother refuse to let her out so as to relieve herself, she empties a jewelry case and uses that as a temporary laboratory. When reason still hasn't been tortured into her head, 
Madame Monnier and Marcel ambushed Blanche a week later, one evening, to bind the windows shut. While she is held down by her own mother, smelling of her excrement, her brother ensures that the shutters are nailed tight, that Blanche should not find a means to escape, and what's more, that light should never reach her room. Not now, not until she comes to her senses. But that day does not come any time soon. It does not arrive when her waste inevitably spills out of one corner. The light does not enter her bedroom, not while bedbugs descend on her straw mattress and other insects to the food scraps that have begun to pile around and on the bed. It does not arrive when pieces of rotting meat, fish, and even oysters collect about the bedroom, their odor suffocating. She sits in states of misery so profound that they must belong only to humans. These days of torture extend beyond comprehension. The unfathomable psychology which allows a mother to do this to her own child becomes even more twisted as not weeks or months collect, but whole years. Marcel and Madame Monnier wear black for the first few months. They do this when those pesky questions come about for their beautiful Blanche. They scrunch up their faces in pain as they recall the horrendous accident which stole her life before it could even begin. Oh, we always told her not to step too high on that ladder in the library, didn't we? Marcel would say with tears collecting in his eyes. As life went on, the questions and consultments concerning Blanche's sudden disappearance lessened. Death, as it often does, appeared to take its cheap shot at the Monnier family, then quietly receded into the anonymity of time. It is dubious to suspect that the public would have any suspicion regarding her disappearance. The Monnier's respectability was tied to its wealth. Seeing as how there was a lot of it, there's little reason to think anybody would doubt the claims of Marcel and his mother. They'd just lost a dearly loved sibling and daughter, after all. What a horrendous thing to think that there had been any foul play. As the clocks tick away the days, loose ends are severed. A bribe and well-timed placement of dissolvable powder finds its way to Daniel's lips at a cafe in the autumn of 1885. Ruled as a heart attack, and with the public unaware of Blanche and his love, Daniel's body is lowered into its own kind of cage, with just as a little suspicion surrounding his departure from the living world. The seasons continue to turn over. The years stagnate in that room where no light persists. There are no birthdays or breaks or moments of leniency. The madness perpetuates itself, like black mold consuming a forgotten house, its walls damp from the breath of ghosts and nights of ceaseless rain. Her suffering enters into realms of the truly unimaginable. She sits in her own decay, granted the injustice of continuing to live somehow. That is, until, on the 23rd of May, 1901, a letter is delivered to the Paris Attorney General. It reads, Monsieur Attorney General, I have the honor to inform you of an exceptionally serious occurrence. I speak of a spinster who is locked up in Madame Monnier's house, half-starved, and living on a putrid litter for the past twenty-five years, in a word, in her own filth. Mademoiselle Monnier is summarily rescued upon this letter being read. The police officers force their way into the home, being fought the entire time, 
and investigate the halls and various bedrooms. On the second floor, they find that one door in particular seems to be emitting a foul odor. Fearing what they will find, they break it down, finding a woman whose uncut, matted, long black hair covers up her skeletal form. She is smothered in old feces and food, with bugs scattering across the floor at the disturbance. As one of the officers stoop to pick her up, he finds her weight appallingly light, a mere fifty pounds. The air inside was so unbreathable that the officers left before they could even investigate the exact details of her imprisonment. One even wonders if the surprises would be any more startling than the extra details that we might imagine. In fact, one is inclined to think that abandonment of that room is a light sentence. Would it not have been better if they simply set fire to it? Shortly afterwards, her mother is arrested. But it's a mere fifteen days later, after seeing an angry mob gathered outside her house, that she dies. Marcel appears in court and is convicted, but later acquitted on appeal, as he is deemed mentally incapacitated. Although the judges felt severely of his choices, they also said that the duty to rescue did not exist in the penal code at that time, and thusly, it was without sufficient rule to convict him. So not in vengeance or justice, not even in time, is there retribution for Mademoiselle Monnier. The twenty-five years spent in isolation have robbed her of her youth and beauty, and instead replaced them with scars that can hardly begin to heal before she dies. What is a mere twelve years of freedom following the day of a rescue? And what freedom she does experience is plagued by various disorders, one of which being schizophrenia. Though she did escape that room, it is with a kind of morbid certainty that we can say, for years afterwards, her mind was never fully granted serenity from it. I regret to inform my listeners that all the dates, characters, and even details of the story are entirely historical. The one exception is Daniel, who, in fact, was not poisoned, or at least there was no evidence for it, but his death was mysterious and unexplained. I did also struggle to find the name of the man that Blanche was in love with, so I had to come up with my own. I was drawn to the story not only because it is brutally simple and just how few people it involves, but also because for me, it highlights a theme that is continually recurring in my life, and it's this. Perfectly sane people do and think absolutely insane things. And that insane action doesn't necessarily mean for their whole life and all their thinking that they are mad to their core. Unfortunately, it's just not that simple, and not so easy to spot. Otherwise rational and decent people do unspeakable things, but all it takes is one horrendous conviction twisted belief, or false principle to completely shatter continuity of moral behavior. It is difficult to say what Madame Monnier's life consisted of. Were those 25 years of her daughter's imprisonment the only crime she committed? Was she capable of expressing basic love, affection, or kindness to others while she did this? One can almost certainly assume so, and yet somehow that makes it only the more sickening to imagine. 
So with that, I'll leave the rest to your ruminations. We do, in fact, have some crypt cleaning to do. First off, I hope all my listeners enjoyed their Thanksgiving, if they did indeed celebrate it. Or, if you're like me, a recluse, and you just went about your normal business that day, I think it's safe to say we can celebrate just having another day to be alive. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll have seen that I submitted a poll asking what people are more interested in hearing about next. One was John D, a royal magician, and the other H.H. Holmes. I think it's reasonable to assume I'll get to both of them eventually, but for the time being, I am reading Holmes' autobiography and just getting inside his head. It was my initial plan to have his episode out today, but I wanted to do him justice. Seeing as how he's become something of a serial killer's tall tale, the more that I figure out and research the actual events behind the quote, murder castle, it's important for me to bring a fresh angle to it, and I can't really do that if I'm rushing, so instead, I whipped up this horrific misadventure, which was slightly more straightforward. And now, I need to correct for misspeaking. Last episode... <laughs> this just so plainly states that. So last episode, I mentioned that the next Mania special will be out in early November. That is clearly the sleep-deprived, addled nonsense of past me, as it was early November during that very recording. I am, well, with relative certainty uh, that I meant to say early December, but you, you never know with me. Looking at the pace of production now, I can say that we'll be pushing that tentative date forward perhaps to the end of December or even early January. But lastly, I'd like to thank my listeners. Nightmares cannot exist without minds to haunt them, so your continued interest and curiosity in these stories really does bring them to life. I would encourage any of my listeners to consider subscribing to the show through Patreon, where you will find patron-only exclusives. Otherwise, you can review the show, talk about it with your friends, or sacrifice any number of sheep in its name. Mania does take blood donations. And with that, I leave you to the rest of your evening, morning, or afternoon. May it be enchanted, or at the very least, well haunted. Also, please don't kill any sheep in my name. I do sincerely hope you'll join me next time.